This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. This morning we're thinking together about one phase of Christian teaching, which is perhaps one of the most misunderstood of all Christian beliefs. It is this matter of the unpardonable sin. If you're still battling with the question of once saved, always saved, then the doctrine of what the Bible says about the unpardonable sin may be even more confusing to you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have reference to this sin, but I've chosen this morning to read the account from Matthew's gospel. It's found in chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. You might, if you have your Bible and can, open it to that passage. There's been much confusion to bewilder people since Jesus spoke the words in this place. Just the idea that there's one sin which cannot be forgiven has been a stumbling block to many honest Christians. John Bunyan was at one time disturbed by the fear of this sin, which he imagined he had committed. It robbed him of all the peace and joy he should have had. He even said he envied the spiders crawling on the wall as they had not sinned away their salvation. There are some who contend that there's no such thing as an unpardonable sin. As they say, Jesus was here speaking figuratively, not literally. They say that since Jesus was the incarnate Son of God, and since God is love, then there is no sin which cannot be pardoned. As harsh as it may seem, however, I believe that there is a sin which even God cannot forgive. There is an unpardonable sin. In the verses I've just mentioned from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, there's a reference to the Son of Man, saying that a sin against the Son of Man could be forgiven, but not a sin against the Holy Spirit. Now, this can present quite a problem for those who believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three in one, as we sing one in three persons, blessed Trinity. This scripture seems to say that a sin against Jesus can be forgiven, but not a sin against the Holy Spirit. The answer to this problem lies in our interpretation of the phrase, the Son of Man. William Barclay helps us, I think, at this point by noting that the Hebrew phrase, a Son of Man, means simply a man and nothing more. The Jews often use this phrase in reference to any man. For example, we might say today, there was a man who, but a Jewish rabbi might say, there was a son of a man who. And so it may well be that what Jesus was really saying was this. If any man speaks a word against a man, it will be forgiven. But if any man speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. A man may disobey or disregard the words of the prophet in the marketplace or the preacher in the pulpit, but he dare not disobey or disregard the Holy Spirit when he speaks to the heart. 
Now, with this as a background, let's continue to look more closely at just what this unpardonable sin really is. During 60 or so years in the ministry, I have heard quite a few explanations as to what the unpardonable sin is. People have suggested all sorts of things in trying to say what this sin is. I've heard some say it is murder, because if you take another person's life, you can't replace it. Some say it is suicide, because a person cannot replace his own life, and you can't get forgiveness after it's done. Some say that adultery is the unpardonable sin because you cannot retract that act or attitude. Uh, some have said that divorce is the unpardonable sin. Some define it as ascribing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit. Some say the unpardonable sin is blasphemy within the lips, such as profanity, which may come bursting forth in a moment of anger. Well, all of these ideas leave me somewhat confused. It seems to me that the unpardonable sin can be explained in a much easier and more logical manner, which can be understood by even the smallest child. I believe the unpardonable sin is not some deep, complex theological doctrine that only a few can understand. I believe it's really rather simple. Maybe it's oversimplified in my childish mind, but this is the way it seems to me. Part of our problem with misunderstanding this sin is the fact that we often drop down in the middle of a story and look at only one or two verses without seeing the background, without seeing the scriptural passage in its context. That's always a hindrance to understanding because we get just a part of the picture. Mark's gospel tells us that one day, Jesus had found himself in a discussion with some scribes and Pharisees who had come to Jerusalem from Galilee to prevent the common people from following Jesus. The miracles that they had seen Jesus perform were tremendous testimonies to the fact that truly Jesus was the Son of God. These wicked men could not help but admit that Jesus surely had some kind of supernatural power. They had seen his miracles with their own eyes. All they could do was to turn and try to discredit him by saying, oh yes, he had power, but it was not from God in heaven. They said his power came from Satan and hell. These scribes and Pharisees were cold and crafty in their rejection of Jesus. They disliked him when they first heard of him, and the more they saw him, the more they disliked him. Their rejection of Jesus was deliberate and studied. They finally came to the place where they not only disliked him, but they also developed a bitter and malignant hatred for Jesus. This was their fatal sin. They would rather do anything than to admit that Jesus was the Savior of the world. They rejected Jesus as Savior. Now, in this passage from Matthew 12, 24, these people specifically attributed the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. This was their action in this particular instance. Their real unpardonable sin was their deliberate, cold, planned, permanent rejection of Jesus Christ as their Savior. They didn't want any part of him as far as salvation was concerned. We could not say then that profanity 
or blasphemy, if you use these words to mean the same thing, would be the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> I'm aware that Jesus said that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. But we must remember also that this passage begins by saying, and Jesus knew their thoughts. It was not so much the idea that Jesus was condemning the words of these scribes and Pharisees, but rather it was the hard, cold, stubborn, set refusal of these people to let the Holy Spirit come into their hearts and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That kind of attitude made their sin to be unpardonable. Now, let me try to boil all this down to a simple nutshell of truth in the plainest way I know how to say it. The unpardonable sin is the willful, stubborn refusal of an individual to be forgiven by God for his sins. It is the continued rejection of the warmth and the love of Jesus Christ, the repeated resisting of God's grace and mercy, which could save us from sin, but now which cannot because the individual will not accept it. The reason we cannot be pardoned is because we don't want to be pardoned. God does not wish ideally that there be an unpardonable sin, but we are the ones who make this unpardonable because man continues in his sin not wanting to be forgiven. It is not the will of our Heavenly Father that any one of us should perish. God is a God of love. His heart is warm toward us and he wants us to love him in return so that there not be an unpardonable sin. But there is an unpardonable sin because we make some sin unpardonable. And even God in all his power will not force salvation on us. He will not cram it down our throats. When a person does not want to be pardoned, then he cannot be. On numbers of occasions, I've had people come to me in great distress of soul saying, Preacher, <coughs> I'm so afraid I have committed the unpardonable sin. <coughs> My standard reply to such a person is this. Listen, if you're worried about it, then you have not committed it. The very fact of your worry is proof that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. You're still receptive to the Spirit of God. When you commit the unpardonable sin, you could not care less about whether you're forgiven or not. I mentioned a bit earlier that several specific sins were considered by some people to be unpardonable. <clears throat> now, if you're going to understand what I'm about to say in these next few minutes, you're going to need to go back and review in your mind what salvation is all about. It's like this. A person comes to the Lord opens his heart to him and says, God, I don't deserve your mercy. I'm a sinner, condemned, unclean. I'm powerless. My life is unmanageable. I need grace, not justice. I need mercy. And when we come to God in this way, then God forgives us and he gives to us a gift of eternal life. This is a permanent gift since not God is not what we used to call an Indian giver. If you can lose it, then it was not eternal to start with. Now, 
If one has been truly saved, has been born again or from above, has become a new creature, what happens when this person sins? Let's take an example of a man who has come from the wickedness of his own sin into a vital saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He really has been saved. He has eternal life. Let's say this man goes out the day after he's saved and he commits the sin of gossip. It's not something he does intentionally, but it's been the pattern of his old life before Christ. Has God forgiven him of that sin when he forgave this man at his salvation? Certainly, yes. God is not going to condemn this man to hell because of the sin of gossip, is he? Now this man does need to confess his sin. He needs to be sorry when it's brought to his attention. But God is not going to condemn this man because he, is, because he has not reached the place of confronting himself with the fact that he's sinned. And he's able to say, yes, God, I have gossip. Please forgive me. No, no. God has already forgiven this man because God has taken this man in his arms and he has given him eternal life. <clears throat> now, we sometimes think of gossip as rather a mild form of sin. So, Let's increase that degree of sin now. Let's use the example of anger, which brings forth profanity. The person who commits this sin has not been miraculously freed from all the old sinful habits when he's saved. God never promised that. He does not promise that we'll be sinless after conversion. And as soon as that profane word is uttered, though, that person knows he's wrong. But here again, God has already forgiven him, past, present, and future. I'm trying to describe here God's forgiveness as great, merciful, and loving. God takes us in his arms, and he forgives us completely. There's no necessity for us having to think, now let me see here, I think I've sinned here, so I must hurry and get forgiveness because if I happen to sin and then die without having asked for forgiveness for some particular sin, oh, then I'm eternally doomed. Oh, no, that is not the way God works. Now, there are some religious systems that teach this, but I think the Bible teaches otherwise. I say all this by way of preface. I'm building up to something. I have talked with a number of people about the matter of suicide. If you believe that a person must run to God and to confess a certain named sin before death in order to be redeemed and have a home in heaven, then logically thinking suicide cannot be forgiven since death occurs before forgiveness can be received. But let's back up and go back to what I've just said. When God forgives, he can forgives completely, eternally. I believe it's possible for a person to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and then catch a cold. I believe it's possible for a person who has truly been born again to break an arm. I think it's possible for one who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to develop cancer or COVID-19. And it is also possible for one who has truly been saved to develop another sickness of the mind. But that kind of sickness is shadowy, vague, and 
and hard to understand because it is of a different nature, but it can happen. Those, there are those who have this sickness and sometimes those in the depths of depression, despondency might even take their own life. Are we saying then that God rejects this person who has this sickness? There are those who say, yes, suicide is always unpardonable. I do not hold that belief. I believe that way of thinking is inconsistent with all that the Bible teaches about God's mercy. I'm not saying that suicide is always right or that it is ever right. I'm not saying that one who commits suicide is always mentally ill. What I am saying is that it's very important we not make a sweeping generalization on every person at this point. I would come again, as I've said before in this series of three messages. Let's let God be the judge. Let's be slow to make a dogmatic statement that one action can never be forgiven, be it murder, suicide, or whatever it is. The unpardonable sin is the continued pushing God away, saying, God, I don't want to be forgiven. It's just about that simple in my mind. When a person wants to be forgiven, then he can be forgiven. There is not a sin that God does not want to forgive. And the unpardonable sin, therefore, can take many forms. One person's unpardonable sin may be in the style of wicked life he lives because he doesn't want to be forgiven from that. Another person may be different. I know some individuals, for example, who have not been forgiven for the sin of divorce because they have said, Oh, I am completely innocent. I'm not guilty in the least. It was my ex who had all the wrong. Has that person been forgiven? Forgiven for what? Nothing has been confessed, and there's no forgiveness when there's no desire to be forgiven. God does not forgive innocence. But I know of some other people who've committed the sin of divorce and who have come to the Lord saying, Oh, God, I'm guilty in being a part of a broken marriage. And I've had a share in violating your first choice. I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. And I believe with all my heart that God forgives that person and forgives completely. And those who know me know that I'm Exhibit A in this category. In the dark waters of Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, there are some fish that were once able to see, but they've lost their sight from living in the darkness for so long. They have eyes, and to all outward appearances they can see, but they're actually blind. Human beings bring tragedy and darkness upon themselves when they willfully refuse to accept Christ as Savior and be forgiven of their sins. This phrase Accept Christ had become a cliche for preachers and other people. When we come to the close of many worship services, we say, is there anyone here who would like to accept Christ this morning? That means coming into a saved relationship, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm very indebted to Dr. A.W. Tozer for some clear thinking about this phrase, accept Christ. You can ask the average person, how do you come into a savoring relationship with Jesus? Most people will probably say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's Acts 16, 31. 
Or maybe you'll get the answer, receive Christ as your personal Savior, John 1, 12. Or the person maybe will just say, accept Christ. <clears throat> you may be very much surprised to know this phrase, accept Christ, is not found anywhere in the Bible. <clears throat> but this is what people often say in referring to coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. This whole attitude about accepting Christ is very misleading because it makes Christ stand there hat in hand waiting on our judgment. He stands respectfully before our desk and we're hiring him. We read over a few of his references, Bible verses, and we say, well, I don't know if I should accept him. What do you think, Mabel? Should I accept this guy? And all the while, here sits the proud sinner, sophisticated, filled with moral leprosy and cancer, rotten to the core. But he is judging whether he will accept Christ or not. And here Christ stands. And we, like little animated clothespins in the presence of the eternal Son of God, we are judging Christ? But he is the one who has power to create the world, to raise the dead. As Paul says in Colossians, the first chapter, he's the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth. He existed before all things, and all things were held together by him. And so we little upright clothespins look at this tall, stately Christ, and we decide whether we will accept him or not? How grotesque can it be? The question ought not to be, will I accept Christ? But rather, will he accept me? But we know he will accept us if we come to him. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out, he promises. A student came to his teacher one day asking how long he might put off making his decision to follow Christ. The teacher said, well, you can put it off until the day before you die. The student said, but I don't know when I'm going to die. Then, said the wise teacher, you better decide today. Yes, there is an unpardonable sin. And the unpardonable sin for you, for me, for any one of us, is our decision to go our own separate way and let God go His way. I'll be the boss of my life. I am in control. I will not open my soul to the Lord and receive Him. I did it my way. And the reason this sin is unpardonable is because the person does not want to be pardoned. But listen, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the sin which was once unpardonable can become pardonable. By a miraculous event, our own sinful nature can be forgiven. This is the story of Jesus Christ, the story of the gospel, and what a beautiful story it is. If you've not done so, and if you're ready right now to say yes to God, to let Him come into your heart, God is ready. There's no better time than right now. Oh God, for the one person who may be unsure of their salvation, or for the one who has not received Jesus, may this be the moment when that person says, Yes, Jesus, I receive you into my heart. 
Thank you for saving me through your precious shed blood. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.